Yeah, so when Keith first asked me about coming up and preaching, you know, <clears throat> obviously I was really honored that he would ask me, and, and, I, and I told him that. You know, I know he doesn't take it lightly to have somebody come up here, especially on a Sunday morning. And, um, you know, I told him, hey, man, I, it really means a lot to me that you would trust me this much. And his response was really good. He said, I have complete confidence in you, in who you are in Christ. I don't think he meant that as, as a rebuke, but it, it kind of hit me that way. Like, remember who put you up here today. Remember who's working through you as you deliver this message. It's not about me. And, you know, it's just, that's such a true statement. And it just, just really hit me how, how he responded. You know, I'm super blessed to be a part of this church and blessed to learn from Pastor Keith, even just in short interactions like that, just the way that he talks and the way that he lives his life. Um, and kind of like he said, you know, I'm so thankful above and beyond all of that for, for what God has done in my life. I've had people, my wife, obviously my pastor, say that, you know, they've noticed such a difference um, in, in different aspects of my life entirely. And so because of that experience, I have this growing desire to, to share that experience, to share that testimony, to share the revelation that, that the Lord has given me, you know, the, the knowledge, this deepening knowledge of God's character with other people. And so not only has God kind of nurtured that desire for me to share things, but that's, that's what his word says, right? I mean, that's, that's the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so I think at least for me, the word that's most conjured up with, with the Great Commission would be evangelism, right? Evangelism, as it pertains to, you know, the Great Commission is going out and, and preaching that word to the nations. But I think another important word that goes hand in hand with evangelism would be apologetics. And so if you're like me, the first time I heard the term Christian apologetics, right, I thought it was this, it must have been this group of people that was going around apologizing on behalf of some kind of Christian group of people. I didn't know what the Christian group had done wrong. I didn't know why there needed to be an apology made, but apparently that's, that's what was happening. Um, obviously, that's not the meaning of apologetics. Um, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, and we see that used in 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, the people who oppose Christianity, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So even though it kind of sounded like apology, that's, that's again, that's not what it means. It means to, to make a defense or respond for why you believe what you believe, what, you, what is your position. So in terms of the Great Commission, in terms of making disciples of all nations, that's kind of how I see how evangelism, preaching the word, and apologetics, defending the word, kind of work together. So you know, I was asked to title the message that I had, so today I kind of want to just focus on, on that, um, you know, defending our faith. So as far as what we see apologetics in the Bible, we can look to Scripture and see several different places, um, you know, even in the early church that this type of reasoning was used. So if we go to Acts 17, verse 2 to 4, it says, As was his custom, 
Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And then a little bit further in Acts 18, we read, When Apollos arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in a public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So we, we, you know, these are just two aspects where we're talking about they used reason and they used arguments to basically convince people intellectually that what they were saying is true and they, they, they pointed to the gospel, obviously, in order, to do, in order to prove what it was that they were saying and the argument that they were making. So Paul encourages us this way in 1 Corinthians. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so I, I love that Paul says here, arguments and opinions, because those are, are, those are two different things, right? I mean, an argument is based on some type of thought, some type of reason why you believe it is what you're saying. Opinions can be based on anything. Well, I just woke up and I feel this way. I read it on the internet. Somebody told me. I mean, opinions, really, when we're talking about eternal things, don't hold a lot of value. But we still have a lot of opinions. We still deal with people who have a lot of opinions. And it's still something that does need to be addressed. But there's a completely different way of addressing arguments as opposed to opinions. So, so that's what I love about what Paul says there, arguments and opinions. What I have a hard time with is the confrontation needing to be something that we enter into. So I, I don't know how it is. For you, maybe you're a person that likes friction. I've known people who like confrontation. I know people who like debate. That's not me. I mean, growing up, literally, I had friends who introduced me as their mute friends. <laughs> and obviously, I was then embarrassed and would stand there saying nothing and just smiling in that circumstance. So I'm not an expert in just overcoming timidity. I don't have tips and tricks about how I've just all of a sudden become this bold person who talks to everybody that passes me by. Um, you know, this whole message is something that the Lord's been dealing with me on for the last several months. And so, you know, it's, it's just as much been for me as for anybody else that's here. And I mean, obviously just standing up here is difficult. If I have any more than like six eyeballs looking back at me at any time, I start to feel, you know, weak in the knees. But again, back to what Keith said, he's got confidence in who I am in Christ, so I'm just trusting that he's got me up here. But so when we look at Scripture, we, we not only find the command to share our testimony about the good news about Jesus, but we also find encouragement, and I think some practical steps as far as how to do that, especially if you're somebody like me that doesn't exactly know how to start those conversations. Right? So in Matthew 22, verse 41 to 45, Jesus is sitting with the Pharisees, and we see, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? 
So Jesus enters into that conversation just with, with a question, you know, an unassuming question. He's not belligerent. He's not confrontational. He's not condescending. He just asks a simple question. He allows them to respond. And then actually with another question, he kind of points out where their folly lies. And we actually see, I mean, all the way through the Scripture, Jesus reasoning with people through these kind of unassuming questions. And so I believe two things are oftentimes true. One, people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about why they believe what they claim to believe. And I don't think that a lot of people think about eternity just in general. So I read a study from the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. They interviewed 2,000 unchurched people and actually Two in five, so 40%, said they never think about what happens after death. So if we look back to Jesus' response in Matthew 22, whether they accept that or not, he's giving them something to think about. And I think so often, you know, we're dealing with 40% of people out there who don't even think about these things. Sometimes all it takes is one of those unassuming questions just to get them to start to think about stuff that they've never thought about before. So, and two, again, maybe I'm talking about it, someone, you know, as an introvert like myself, but I think we also can feel this pressure when we enter into those conversations to, to convince people, you know, to, to close the sale. We need to convince people that, you know, what we're saying and what we believe is true, and that's what they need to believe too. But we don't even take the time a lot of times to understand where they're coming from. Where is their hesitation in believing these things? What, why do they believe what they believe, if they can even explain it? And so I think a lot of times simply asking those questions allows us to get to know them and have a better conversation with them. So in that same study, it was encouraging to read that 80% of those same unchurched people don't mind talking about their faith, or, or not even their faith, but just faith in general, if they're talking to somebody that they call a friend. The study didn't really define what a friend is, but even if we're talking about striking up a conversation with a stranger in a supermarket, again, just asking those questions and just getting to know them a little bit in that moment, I think we can all see that, that building that foundation then goes into uh, producing a better atmosphere to have that type of conversation. And so, even in the Great Commission, you know, we're told to make disciples of all nations. Discipling someone, that really stands out to me. Discipling someone is not just preaching at them. Discipling someone is building a relationship with them. Discipling takes time. Discipling takes conversation. It takes these, these types of, of conversations like we're, we're talking about. And so, you know, again, looking back to 1 Peter 3.15, we read, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What we didn't read the first time around is, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We have to have that gentleness and respect and patience when we enter into these conversations. I mean, it's obviously not always easy, especially if we're talking to somebody that doesn't believe like we believe. But if we enter into one of those conversations and it ends up being a confrontation rather than a conversation, there's not going to be any fruit that comes out of that for anyone. And so we need to ask the Lord, especially if we feel those negative emotions, that anger building up, we need to ask for that, that patience, that calmness, you know, those, those fruits of the Spirit, right? And that point's reiterated to us in, in 2 Timothy. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, but with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So again, it's helpful to get to know the person a little bit, or at least try to start to understand what it is they believe or or what it is that's coming between them and and the God that we know so that we know how to approach them. Um, But we always absolutely need to approach them with patience, with with gentleness, and, and with respect. And then hopefully as we get deeper into these relationships or into these conversations, we'll also know our word well enough to not only know what we say that we believe, but also why we believe it. It goes, you know, both ways. We're called to defend our faith by reading the Word and studying it. 2 Timothy, again, 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved to God. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. So, if you believe like I do that the Bible is 100% true, then there really should be no skeptical argument that anybody else can come towards us with that, that should scare us off. We might have to go look and see what that answer is, but we should always be trusting that there is an answer to any kind of skeptical question or concern. There is. And so studying, obviously, you know, whenever Paul says to Timothy, there, study to show yourself approved. Study obviously involves reading the Word and knowing the Word, but, you know, I've heard it said that Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And so I think also studying who it was written to, that, that time period, that Jewish culture, what certain words meant to them, allows us to better understand practically the way that we can know the ways that it was written for us and maybe not to us, and what those takeaways should be for us in our present day, in our present lives, in our present culture. And so even, you know, when we think about just on the surface of these things and and considering when these scriptures were written and what other prevailing thoughts and and ideas were going on at that point in time, um, just for instance, when we can look at the book of Job, which a lot of people consider to be the oldest book in the Bible, but it says that God hangs the earth on nothing. And so today it's really easy for us to gloss over that, right? The earth is hung on nothing. It's just suspended in outer space. We all know that. But at that point in time, to know that that the prevailing thought was that it was carried around on the back of something, right? The Greek god Atlas, I think it's Greek. But they thought that this giant man carried earth around on his back. That was what they believed. Some other cultures of the time thought that, well, maybe it was carried around on the back of a giant elephant or the back of a giant sea turtle. They would have laughed at the fact that somebody said it was just suspended in air. I mean, we can laugh at the thought that it was carried around on the back of a giant sea turtle, but back then, that's the prevailing thought. So knowing those types of things is really interesting, but it also builds our faith to know that the Word of God was true and always has been true. Also, the book of Job talks about hydrologic cycles, the way that the rain you know, evaporates and then comes back down and it's a whole cycle of, of fluid, right? That wasn't discovered by science until much later on. We can read even in the book of Psalms um, about oceanic pathways. So 
I don't know if you guys ever heard this, but there's this guy, Matthew Fontaine Moore. He served in the U.S. Navy in the mid-1800s. His dad was a minister. He was a committed Christian. He knew his word. And as he read through the Psalms, he came to the passage in Psalm 8.8 that says, The birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. So again, Maury, knowing that the word of God is true and always is true, set out on a quest to find these pathways of the seas. And that was kind of his life's work, and, and he discovered them. He discovered the pathways of the seas, which we know now as ocean currents. And they've been studied and graphed, and you can see how these pathways, these currents, go all over the earth. They were discovered because this guy read the Psalms and said, where are they? And he went and found them, and again, the Bible proved what science then later confirmed. And so again, learning these evidences are incredibly encouraging, I think really interesting, um, and also, we need to gain an understanding of typical criticisms that we might deal with. There's really only a, a handful of the same kind of criticisms and, and skeptical opinions that come up time after time. So knowing them and knowing how to engage in them and answer them is really beneficial as, as a way of you know, studying the word to show ourselves approved. Right? And people do have legitimate questions about the Christian faith and the God that we serve. If God is love, why is there so much evil in the world? Haven't the scriptures been corrupted and changed over hundreds of years? We don't even really know what they said in the beginning. Won't someone still go to heaven if they just faithfully serve whatever God it is that they say they believe in? Isn't really just the God of the universe looking for sincerity more than anything else? Hasn't science and archaeology disproved so many claims of the Bible? So if it's disproved a couple things, how can we say that the whole word is true? These are just different, a couple of the typical talking points that unbelievers might come up with. And they can all be answered in a biblical way. But we need to study to figure out what those answers are. And so Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So again, here in Colossians, we see the instruction to treat others with respect and grace, and also be prepared. But I think it's important here to note, too, that we're told to make the most of every opportunity. I think one of the things that has helped me to be a better ambassador for Christ is realizing that my responsibility is to, to, to be prepared, to know my word, to share my word, share my testimony, share the things that God has revealed to me. But there's no pressure on me to convert anybody. There's no pressure on me to save anybody. That's not my responsibility. That's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. You and I are responsible for studying. We're responsible for sharing with respect and patience and, and, and um, respect. But then at that point in time, it's up to God. And we're just supposed to trust that God will do whatever God wants to do in their life. You know, certainly not everyone's going to accept what we say or even want to listen to what we say. So we pray for them and we leave them in God's hands. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-8 kind of backs this up as well. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. 
So we have no idea if we're planting. We have no idea if we're watering. We don't really even have any idea if God's going to make it grow, if that person's going to be open to that. But either way, we don't have any control over it. We have our responsibility to know the word, to share the word, and that's really it. And so I think that just alleviates a lot of, of the pressure. I mean, it should alleviate a lot of the pressure in having those conversations. And I think that a lot of us, I know I used to be, certainly, are predisposed to getting angry if we can't convince somebody else to believe the same way that we believe or to think the same way that we think and have the same opinions that we have. Again, I know that's something that, you know, that, that God has worked on with me for the last couple years, but again, getting angry and getting combative doesn't yield any fruit. It doesn't accomplish anything positive. I mean, at best, we can probably hope if we have a combative conversation that, that the other person just kind of forgets about it and everybody goes about their day not kind of remembering it or, or dwelling on it. But at worst, we've just helped them put up another wall between them and God and made it even more difficult for the next person that God puts in their life to plant that seed for it to actually take root. And so along the same lines, uh, you know, we should always be pointing back to Jesus, even if we don't get in the point of the conversation to sharing the entire gospel. Even if making the most of every opportunity means that we plant a seed and don't necessarily share everything that we know and our entire testimony and, and the whole gospel, our heart should always be and our motivation should always be pointing back to Jesus. And our actions can show the character of Jesus to others, even if it's a short interaction, even if it's a short exchange, when we enter into these types of conversations. Because, you know, as we were talking about this message, Pastor Keith said this, I thought that was really good, but we're, we're not only entering into these conversations to, to defend our faith, but it's also a way of protecting our witness, right? Just to act the way that Jesus would want us to act in those conversations can still be a seed that's planted. And the point of sharing our, or defending our faith or studying apologetic responses shouldn't ever be so that we can embarrass our unbelieving coworker or shouldn't be so that we can gain some kind of glory because we think that people are going to look at us with some kind of adoration because of all of our wealth of knowledge. You know, all knowledge comes from Jesus, and all knowledge should point back to Jesus. I don't believe that we're supposed to grab the elbow of everyone that we pass on the street and ask them if they know Jesus. I don't think that's supposed to be what we do, but, but I do believe that we're constantly supposed to be prepared and looking for the opportunities that God presents to us and those people that God has put in our life to share with. And again, so if you believe like I do that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and contains nothing but truth, we shouldn't have any fear of entering into those conversations and sharing the truth that we know with the world. And so kind of four points, if I can summarize, we need to, number one, be respectful, right? Correct the wrongs but do it with gentleness, do it with patience, do it with self-control. And that's something that all of us can leave here immediately and do. That doesn't take any time or effort, really. Two, we need to be prepared. We have to study to show ourselves approved. St study the Word, study these things that we might be um, having a conversation about, like we talked about. Three, be patient. We have to understand that it might just be our job that day to plant a seed even maybe just with our actions and not even necessarily with our words, and trust that God has it from there. And, and so the fourth point would just be to be humble. It's, it's not about us. It's not about us winning an argument. It's not a, about us looking smarter than the other person. 
It's, it's about Jesus, and it should always point back to him. And so I'm going to hand it back over to Pastor Keith here in a minute, and I think we're going to open the altars. Um, but I one more thought that I felt like, even after I had written this whole thing up, that I felt like the Lord wanted me to show this, share this morning. So we're basically given the same types of instructions in dealing um, or challenging beliefs or opinions of, of other people within the body as we are with unbelievers. You know, obviously I talked a lot about the unbelievers and having conversations with them, but we should go about the same, we should go about it the same way when we're having a conversation even within the church. Matthew 18.15 gives us a great example of this, but in general, you know, unbelievers can put up walls between them and God, but even within the church, we can put up walls between each other, right? Um, a lot of people, especially here, have, have known each other for a long time. Um, I'm still fairly new. I'm not from Tyrone originally. My wife's not from Tyrone originally. We've been here for about four years, so we're just now starting to get to the point where we have these deeper friendships and these deeper relationships, but, but I know a lot of people have, have known each other, you know, your, your entire lives. And so when you've gone through those seasons of, of friction and have had different things happen, again, those, those walls might have come up. And so I guess I just wanted to encourage us all, my, myself, included, myself included, that God's desire is for us to work through our differences and have those kind of sometimes hard conversations, but have them in love and, and patience and gentleness. You know, if we've heard that someone has said something bad about us or we have an issue with something that we saw somebody do or, or heard somebody say, I mean, I believe that we're instructed not to go and gossip to the other people that we know or go home and sit there and stew in anger that just causes division, but we're supposed to go and ask questions and, and, and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters, right? I mean, James says that we're supposed to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So we're just supposed to speak the truth, speak the truth. We have to speak the truth, but we're supposed to speak it in love, pray together, and try to be reconciled of any differences in a biblical way. So in all things, in all relationships, let's look to the Word of God and see what it says. Love our neighbor, try to be reconciled to our neighbor, and try to help our neighbors be reconciled to God.